my episode with you might be a little bit more of a like what not to do if you want to enter this career versus a success strategy maybe, but we'll see how it goes. That's great. It's all about uh, different perspectives, right? Yes. Yeah. Hello, 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 and welcome to Canadian Made. My name's Olivia, and on this podcast, we go behind the scenes of the Canadian entertainment industry. So if you want to learn more about the industry, if you're interested in breaking in, this is the podcast for you. The clip that you heard at the top of the show was from our guest today, Megan McAteer. She is a very experienced director and producer in the unscripted space, she's worked on shows that you will have heard of, including Property Brothers, MasterChef Canada, Hello Goodbye. The thing I like about this episode is how honest Megan is about her own career journey and gives really amazing advice about how to be intentional when you are creating your career. And we also talk about how the pandemic caused her to make some changes in her own career. She went back to school, got her master's, and is now starting to dip her toes into the narrative space with her narrative short film called One Day, Day One. I know that you are going to love this episode. I found Megan to be incredibly encouraging and motivating. You know, even with all of her experience, she's not afraid to take risks in her in her career now. So I know I left this conversation feeling super energized and kind of ready to take on the world. So I know that you're going to feel the same way too. So without further ado, let's get into my conversation with Megan. So I want to first ask you about your very first job in the industry and how you got it. I come through the sort of the university strategy. I went to film school. Uh, my undergrad was at York University, so I have a Bachelor of Fine Arts in um, film and video production, which their degree shifted over probably, that was like the early 2000s, so it's probably changed its name a million times since then, but um, that was where I began. And in my third year, I had access to um, their very first attempt at an internship program. Um, and so Ryerson is a very, oh, sorry, the Toronto Metropolitan University is a very, at the time, was a very well-connected school for film and media-related studies. And so they had a lot of, like, the cool internships, and they were connected to studios and all sorts of things. Um, and York, conversely, was, like, a staunchly independent filmmaker-based sort of study space. And so they didn't really have the same kinds of connections. Um, so there were six of us in that year that attempted to do the internship program. I believe... Four of the six, so every almost everyone except me went to like one space that ended up being like, for lack of a better word, like an adult film production company. And then I ended up getting placed at a company that no longer exists, but it was around for a long time called Absolute Location Services. That was like a warehouse that stored all of the pylons you see at every film site that have the like at symbol on them. Um, and so I was like wearing like, warehouse gear and loading the backs of like PA's cube trucks for like six months. And so eventually people took notice that I was there, like production assistants, coordinators and PMs that would come through um, and location scouts and location managers, because that's primarily who we dealt with as a location services company. And they were like, what are you doing here? Why are you doing this job? And I was like, I paid a lot of money to be here. I'm not even getting paid for this. Like, I'm just trying to like get my hands on something in the industry. And so I think people started to like, just feel bad for me. <laughs> and I used that to my advantage and was able to be taken to sets. And so um, I had a location scout, I believe his name was John Bard and a location manager who would take me around when I was able to like get off work and they would bring me to the sets they were working on and I would get to meet people. So the very first actual job I volunteered to do, I did not get paid. I volunteered to PA for a job um, and it was probably the best job I will ever have. And I don't think it will ever be able to be repeated. And it so far hasn't in the like 20 years since practically, 19 years since. But my very first volunteer PA gig was a commercial for an all brand spot starring William Shatner. 
and um, it had an amazing team of people behind it. So the director was Tom Schiller, who was the director of SNL from like the mid seventies into the early nineties. And the DP was Dean Cundy, who directed, or so it was like the director of photography for Jurassic Park, Hunt for Red October, like 200 and whatever American films. Even recently, he's been um, the DOP for the Book of Boba Fett on Disney+. Plus. So I had these like incredible people that I suddenly was like standing next to with like a garbage can being like, hi, oh my gosh, what's happening over here? And I think again, because I wasn't being paid, there was like a slight more tolerance for me being like, what do you do on set? What do you, like, I was just going around asking questions for, I happened to be a, a bit of a Trekkie also. And so Shatner being on set was like an unbelievable opportunity. He does not talk about Star Trek, but um, he took a liking to me for better, for worse. And so I ended up in the years since that project, I like for probably six years straight would be hired every time William Shatner was in town for a job. I would be like his companion to like keep him on set because he was very um, uh, temperamental for lack of a better word. Uh, but anyway, yeah, that was probably the best job ever. It was, you know, you show up on set at 6 a.m. as per like most commercials, it's a pretty early start, but we would be done by three and we would have like a family meal across the street at this like massive restaurant that the director would rent out and he would just show us his favorite SNL clips. It was like a dream job. Yeah. That is a dream job. And crazy that that was your first experience. You yeah. must have been like a little, had like rose colored glasses about the industry from that experience. Definitely. I think I always have, and, and I still do have rose colored glasses, even in like the worst of circumstances, as long as there's like a camera rolling, I'm like, what's happening? <laughs> like, I just think it's like super exciting. But yeah, that definitely set me up for like, oh yeah, I'm willing to go through whatever I need to go through in this industry to like have access to this feeling and these people and this like creative energy. And even like those, though it was just a commercial, I grew up in the eighties loving commercials. I had my own sort of like Angela Bauer fantasies of like being who's the, who's the boss and like running my own agency one day. Um, so commercials were always something I really loved. And those, those spots were hilarious. I don't know if you remember them. Um, but they were very like raunchy, sort of like toilet humor, all brand spots. So yeah, it was, a, it was a lot of fun for sure. Uh, but yeah, so I started in the industry after that I was in third year um, of my degree, but I began PAing for like every commercial production company in the city. And that sort of just took me after finishing my degree, I just kept PAing for a really long time. That's awesome. So then at what point did you kind of set your sights on working in unscripted then? I never set my sights <laughs> on working in unscripted. I will be extraordinarily honest for you. So uh, it just, you just fell into it then? I always wanted to be, and still do want to be a director. That's my main thing. I'm a storyteller. I want to share and tell and create and build stories and collaborate on stories and again, like being next to any kind of camera is what I love and gives me my energy. Commercials was a thing that I did genuinely love and I grew up loving. And commercials is like the best sort of stomping ground to learn from because especially in the 2000s, in the early 2000s, um, that was still the heyday of like the massive multi-million dollar commercial. Like you're playing with the most amount of money per second of film. So you have every possible tool you could ever want, every toy that exists, every possible bit of like post effect and graphic design, um, every top actor. Like I've worked with DOPs from the Harry Potter franchise. I've worked with directors from like Pride and Prejudice. Like, you know, I've, I've kind of run the gambit of, of having access to that space. And so that was an extraordinary learning ground. And I probably overstayed my welcome there because as a PA, it's amazing because you get to do everything on set in every department. Um, and so you have a lot of access. And at the time, I was one of very few women in the PA role. It wasn't a role that a lot of women gravitated towards. And I could have left that role easily because you are constantly offered office jobs and like assistant producer jobs and, and easier different streams of career paths. And I am like staunchly against doing things because I'm a girl or because I'm a woman. And so I was like, screw you, I wanna drive the truck and I wanna like hump the gear and I'm, I'm gonna like break my ankle trying to like 
get a dolly off this truck because I can. So <laughs> I probably stuck to that career path a little bit longer than I should have. Um, and then probably four or five years in, a producer I'd worked with quite a lot, her name was Heather Angus. I believe at the time we were on a project at Circle Productions. She said that she had this opportunity to do a TV show and like it was just something that fell into her lap and she was going to produce a TV show and like, do I want to come? Because they're looking for somebody who could do like art direction and all these different things. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. I'm like, what would it be like? She's like, it'd probably be two months straight. And as a commercial PA or anybody working in commercials, you're working like daily. You're just like turning over new job every other day. Um, and so time goes by super fast. And again, back in the early 2000s, you're working on days that could be maybe a 16-hour day, but also could be a 24-hour day, could be a 26-hour day. So it was before a lot more of like the regulatory sort of controls had gone in where PAs weren't, didn't have as many protections and there weren't as many legal protections. Suddenly to be offered a job in lifestyle television and sort of unscripted television where it was essentially nine to five-ish and like a consistent job was like, oh, maybe I should try that. So I just kind of popped over um, and yeah, it was a, a show for much music that was being done through a now um, non-existent company called Tricon. Um, Tricon used to be quite a big company in the, again, 2000s. <laughs> um, yeah, it was a, a prank show for much music called Much Screwed Over. That, that sounds about right for the era, doesn't it? <laughs> Yeah, it was like a very poor copy of Punked. <laughs> it was it was quite it was really entertaining and it was a great group of people as my first foray into that space. Um, but yeah, definitely learned a lot along the way and then just kind of fell into that forevermore. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. So what was the biggest kind of difference that you noticed working in, you know, commercials and now you have a lot of more experience in the scripted space versus the unscripted space and especially being a director. So I still, my primary experience is definitely unscripted and within unscripted, there's a few different categories. So there's, you know, the competition reality programming, there's factual programming, there's documentary programming, and then there's sort of lifestyle programming. There's a bunch of different sort of like subcategories within that. Um, I would say that my primary spaces within that would be HGTV and Food Network. So a lot of like the, the home sale shows. So like I've directed Property Brothers, I've directed Sarah Richardson, a lot of like home flipping and selling series. And then in the food space, while I have participated in some of the like competition series, my main thing would be like smaller, small productions, like travel vlog documentary type shows. So that's definitely where the majority of my focus had been. Um, and so as I kind of joked at the beginning about this being maybe more of like an educational what not to do conversation, you know, I came out of film school wanting to direct and wanting to do feature films and like, who doesn't, who doesn't want to do that? Um, and then the industry kind of sweeps you along to some degree. Like I didn't expect that I would PA in commercials for so long, but the money's good and the work was interesting and I was like really hireable and employable. So it just worked out that way. And then when I shifted over into lifestyle television, so from my first job to when I started directing was about four years, three and a half, four years. And it all started happening really quickly. Like technically on my second job at Tricon, I was directing, but it was like split between myself and the director of photography. And then on my, like, I just always sort of picked up directing really quickly. And because the work was there and I was excelling at the work, and had the contacts, I just kept taking the work. And then you blink and like decades have gone by. You're so often like fighting for your supper in this industry and there's a lack of stability and nothing's guaranteed. And so, you know, remembering to be intentional about the choices that you're making because you do eventually get to a point where you can be a little bit more selective, right? When you're first starting out of, out of film school, I mean, you, you have to eat, but... <laughs> But after that, yeah, you do have more, more autonomy. And I think it's a really good perspective and, and good reminder to always be intentional. Well, and I think like, I'm, I'm obviously within our industry, I think I'm speaking from a place of extraordinary privilege in that like, though my career path was very like 
ladder climbing. Like I definitely intentionally started at the bottom where I had access to everything where I could see all the departments and then like chip away at the hierarchy, um, which is something that for the personality type that I am, I appreciate hierarchy. I'm a little bit militaristic. Set life is like, I, I like the systems and structures of it. So I always work really well within the film production system. Um, but I believed in sort of earning your stripes. And so that was the path I took. There were a lot of people who came out of film school around me who had different points of view about that, especially not to be disparaging, but like, like that sort of like standard white male point of view of like, I can just walk into the room and be like, hire me, I'm a director. Like <laughs> drop a script on somebody and they'll be like, yeah. And I was like, oh my God, I would never do that. Even if I thought my script was better or I thought I had the skills, I would, I would be like, let me prove to you I can do the work. So my, my sort of path took a longer, more winding route to get to where I wanted to be. Um, but again, I come from privilege of having gone through post-secondary education, receiving connection through that to get my first jobs. And then I just happened to, to take to the work really well. Um, and I'm, have some skills that cross over to a bunch of different categories of work. And so it just came quite easily to me. And so I, in my experience of my career, haven't really had any lulls of like not having work and having to like look for work. But I think that's also part and parcel of being a part of the non-scripted world, which was a huge part of our Canadian industry for a really long time. Things have shifted slightly now and it's a bit of a different sort of industry space, but um, yeah, I was really, really lucky in that I didn't struggle, but that not having to struggle part didn't make me question what I was doing enough, I think. Mm. That's interesting. But I mean, I can even tell by listening to you talk about it, that you're a really conscientious hard worker. So I think you also deserve some credit for being, uh, being that person. (laughs) Um, But I, okay. One thing I was, when I was reading your CV and getting to know you, one thing I found really interesting that stood out to me was that you worked as a director, as a producer, in story, interchangeably, it seemed at points during your career. And it didn't seem like you were um, necessarily committed to any one thing that you were willing to, to, to do it all. So I'm just curious about that, your kind of thought process behind that. And if you were looking for a certain type of thing, maybe. Um, I would say I I am first and foremost a director, but I would also say I'm a series director and there's not as many opportunities to be a series director these days, um, just the way shows are made. When I started in the industry, especially when I started directing in Unscripted, which was a lot at the time, a lot of like documentary series, like I did um, a show that was classed as a documentary series for Food Network that was a travel food series um, called Pitchin' In. Um, And that was four years of my career and four years of traveling pretty much straight. Like we traveled like two weeks every month for four years, pretty much. Um, It was an amazing experience. And so those kinds of shows were where I really loved to be a part of it. So I could follow a show from beginning through end. I could develop a show over the course of a year or a season or multiple seasons with the showrunners and really make sure that like our talent were sort of getting something out of it. We were going somewhere So, for example, with that series, we were literally following uh, Lynn Crawford, who at the time was the executive chef of the Four Seasons in New York City and had quit her job to do the show with us because she had gotten to this place in her own career where she was like, this isn't what I wanted. Like, this is the most successful I've ever been. And yet it's the farthest from food I've ever been. And I need to get back in touch with food. So she left this like unbelievably high power job um, and then came on the road with us, like five of us as a crew and just like digging up dirt on farms, um, which was an extraordinary experience. But like, so that for me, being attached to a show like that, I I was the field producer in the beginning and then eventually became the director from midway through season two through season four. Those kinds of experiences where I get to be attached to the content for a long period of time is what I like most. As as my career progressed, Um, And I continue to do sort of what was available in the Canadian industry for those kinds of programs. The industry itself changed like around 2012, 2014, there was like a a real shrinking of the industry with respect to unscripted content. And a lot of that, like during that time, a lot of the companies that I was working with, which were smaller companies kind of went bust. I think in that time, like probably 
30 companies that I knew of at the time sort of went under. Um, and a lot of that had to do with those large, big brand sort of formats coming in from the US and the UK, where we were suddenly doing Canada's whatever or MasterChef Canada or Top Chef Canada, or all those sort of like big brand series. Because for every one of those large brand series at the time, the sort of talking point on math was that like, you know, for every one hour of that, you're losing, you know, five smaller half hours that could have been made because the budget for those shows is so much bigger and it pulls so much money. Um, and so a lot of the shows that I would have done sort of dried up. So my career shifted a lot of because of that. So I started working at those sort of larger brand shows as like a story producer or a story editor. But I always go back to directing whenever I have the opportunity for sure. So then in terms of, you know, you've had a lot of experience in the unscripted space. What, you know, advice for people who want to get into it? What are some, you know, common mistakes that you see uh, with people just working in the industry? The unscripted space specifically. It's, I think it's really different. Like, so I saw some of the people that you've spoken to. I've worked like so with Alice and Grace and Merrick Emery and, and Mark. Um, I've worked with a lot of some of the people that you've spoken with. And I've worked with a lot of the different companies in the city. And I think there are really different paths. I think um, my path has been extraordinarily like jump shippy. Like I've moved around to lots of companies, whether by my own choice or not. Like again, a lot of the companies that I originally worked for went under or a lot of my executives that I worked for retired out of the industry. And so I was constantly sort of jumping to new companies. Whereas like I have colleagues and friends who have only ever worked at one brand of company. Like they've only ever been in-house at Proper or they've only ever been in-house at Insight. Or... So I think there are different career paths and it depends on sort of your risk tolerance. Um, and so something that I really have always enjoyed about this career path is that like, we didn't choose to have desk jobs. We didn't choose to like lock ourselves down to like, you know, working for five years to get, you know, access to one sort of um, step up the, the corporate ladder per se. And so I've always really enjoyed the fact that I can like turn around tomorrow and go to like Thailand for three months and then come back and find like a different job with different people that I haven't worked with. So I don't know that I would necessarily recommend my path over somebody staying in one place. I think, you know, over the course of, let's say 15 years, you might end up at the same level. But I think for me, the variety of people that I've been able to work with and the variety of productions I've been able to be a part of is a huge value to me and my own career development. Um, and what I am seeking to get out of this industry, I think that variety keeps me fed and keeps me going. So if you have the tolerance and the stomach for the freelance life of constantly moving around, um, which is something you have to develop, yeah, I would, I really, you know, I like the fact that we can, you know, right now I'm writing on a discovery science series. So I'm filling my head with like nonsense science trivia that like I should be on somebody's pub team right now. But then like next week I might be back on a short film script. And like last month I was on something for like HGUS. Like, so it's sort of, you're constantly shifting gears in a way that I think really works well for my mindset. But yeah, it, it, it's not for the faint of heart necessarily. And also I think like the industry that I walked into in like the early 2000s is not the industry that exists now. And so I think the path that I've had is not going to be repeatable for anybody, nor is the path that started, you know, 10 years ago or five years ago. I think everybody has to sort of negotiate a different strategy, which can make this industry really, really difficult to, to get a foot into the door. So do you think it's more difficult to go into the industry now than it was for you or, or is it just different? I mean, I think it's both. Last year during COVID, I did a master's degree um, just because I wanted to take the opportunity of COVID was the first time in like the 17 years at that point that I had not worked. Because again, when you're freelance, you just tend to take the work as it comes and in that process, you kind of, again, blink and a lot of time has gone by. So COVID being this first time where I could not work, I then decided to like pull myself out of the industry and do a master's degree to like sort of shift gears in my mind. Um, and through that process, I ended up TAing for a class that was called the master class for the undergrad program for radio and television. 
and brought in a bunch of like colleagues and creators that I've wanted to talk to and sort of got some of their understanding of how they got into the industry as well. I think the difference for every year that we kind of move farther into the industry is I do think it's a little bit harder now, though there may be more direct pathways, again, through likely education pathways that lead to internships and connections. Um, Or there's just, you know, if you have familial connections, that will always work. But I think, you know, there's for every year, there's more and more students coming out with degrees related to media. And that sets up an expectation that there's more jobs related to media. And while we do make a lot of content, I don't necessarily know that there are more jobs because there aren't that many people leaving the industry, it seems. That's interesting. That's a really interesting perspective. And while we're talking about your master's, I did want to ask you about it because my my understanding of your master's, and you correct me if I'm wrong, um, was that it you focused on disability representation in, in film and television. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I'm curious if you can tell us a little bit more about what inspired that and, and how that's inspiring your work going forward. Well, so I, sort of to kind of connect it all together, um, as I was mentioning with the work in lifestyle television, I, I absolutely love and appreciate the work that I've done. And I'm, I'm really proud of all of the shows that I've been a part of. And I've learned endless amounts of information. And I still have like on my Facebook page, though I don't go onto my Facebook that often, I still have like contacts of like farmers that I met 15 years ago and like homeowners that I met like on my first or second TV show. I have such a, a reverence for the work and the this people because the humans and the stories that we tell are the thing that really like keep me going. So I love that work, but in my heart of hearts, the person who went to like wanted to go to film school, wanted to like write stories and make stories. And so COVID created an opportunity for me to try to sort of like shift gears again and maybe late in my career, try to do a bit of a shift towards um, fiction content and narrative content. And so that's why I went back to school. Um, Also, just to like back pocket a master's degree, just in case. Um, Not that it is at all required for our industry, because it is not. Um, No degree is actually required for our industry, which is kind of great. But um, it was sort of like the only way my like logical, rational brain would allow me to not work for a full 12 months. So, um, but yeah, so when I got into the program, which is a little bit on a, a bit of a whim. I was a very late entry and a friend of mine who happens to be a professor at the now Toronto Metropolitan University um, sort of like prodded me to like apply. And I was like, no. And then we drank a bunch of wine. And then I woke up the next morning with some like interviews and I was like, oh crap, this is happening. Um, so anyway, it was all a really wonderful, fast, couldn't think, overthink it experience. But when I jumped into it, obviously in the midst of a global pandemic, there were a lot of like sort of questions and issues coming to pass. And um, I happen to be a huge fan of apocalyptic storytelling. It's a big, big like niche genre that I really love and was having some sort of like weird conversations with friends about like, what, what's the worst case scenario? What happens if this? And um, we happened to be talking And it fell into like a friend of mine who was talking to me is a type one diabetic and was like, well, if the pharmacy shut down and like the supply chain shuts down, like I'm dead in 48 hours. And I was like, oh, shit. And then jump over to another friend of mine. And she was like, oh, if I can't get my drugs, oh, no. Like, so we were just sort of like brainstorming that. And I personally, I have an autoimmune disease. I have multiple sclerosis and I was diagnosed in 2005 while I was working in the industry. Though I'm extraordinarily lucky with my disease progression, um, it is a reality that I live with that could take different paths in my future. And so um, I started thinking about like, what does disability look like in the context of apocalypse? And how does that sort of correlate to what we're dealing with now in terms of disaster science and, and sort of all these different like future realities? So my thesis is called Accessibility and the Apocalypse. And it looked at issues related to, you know, why we need apocalyptic story content to sort of exercise our fears as humans. Like we've always, apocalyptic content has been a part of every written culture and every sort of like verbal story culture that has ever been on record. Um, So we need that kind of like 
fatalistic storytelling to exercise our fears and work out sort of our strategies. Um, and then to sort of look at that with the lack of disability representation, where we sort of push these false premises in apocalyptic storytelling of survival of the fittest. And like, it's only the rock who can like make it through and everybody else is gonna perish. And um, which is a false narrative that doesn't really exist. <laughs> and then, you know, saying like, okay, so if people with disability aren't represented, what does that mean in reality? Because our films and our stories are reflections of our world and our realities. And we end up in a world where we have a bunch of people who disregard disability and don't assume that people's disabilities survive. And so they strategize and they plan without thinking about disability. So, you know, more recent examples of that would be Katrina, where you know, there's zero disability representation. There were no accessible ways for people with disability to get access to the shelters. Um, even in more recent history in the US with Hurricane Sandy in New York, where people with disabilities, there was like a, a warning of like three hours, which was not enough time. And then the power all got shut off. So if you were in a, a motorized chair or if you had mobility issues and you were in an upper level apartment complex, you were trapped for weeks trying to like survive without running water and electricity. Um, and so then you flash forward to the COVID-19 pandemic and you know the first people ex to extraordinarily suffer were care homes and that's people with disability in our elderly community that is also in the disability community. So I just sort of wondered about like, what does it look like in a world where we actually listen to people with disability who have extraordinary survival skills because they are surviving every day in a world that's not built for them. So what does that survival look like and how does that impact our outcomes in reality versus in film? And so wrote this paper and then created a short film. Uh, the short film that I created is about a teen and their mom escaping a catastrophe um, where the teen has to figure out how to find the strength to go on on their own after their mother passes. And so um, it looks at sort of flipping the survival of the fittest trope on its head because our protagonist is a teen with disability. So then in terms of like your next steps personal and your personal ambition, are you hoping to like stay or find opportunities in this scripted space? I mean, that's my goal. I know that the transition takes a long time and I'm doing it late in life. You're doing it with experience. I'm doing it with experience. Well, that's <laughs> lovely. That's a lovely way of saying it. I so I you know my short film is going through festival stuff right now. We've got like applications out. We're hoping we get into a couple more festivals and see if we can push it around. Maybe I can sell it a couple of places. I've got my fingers crossed for that. But I'm also still working in this space. So like coming out of the master's degree and through the connection with working on my film, um, which was also an exercise in best practices for working in disability. The creation of the film was sort of a best practices model. And so the script was entirely written in a gender neutral, disability neutral way. There's actually no disability written on the page and there was no gender or parentage assigned to the characters. It was just a, a child character and a parent character. My first primary casting needed to be finding a youth with disability that fit the role that wanted to be a part of the project. And so that was this extraordinary journey of working with like ACTRA, though they don't really represent enough actors with disability in the city or the country. And then also partnering with Holland Bloorview Children's Rehabilitation Hospital. And so Holland Bloorview actually helped sort of foster the project along and put me in contact with a lot of their patients through that process I interviewed and met with a bunch of kids and then found this one kid, Jackie uh, McPherson. They just did such an extraordinary job. And so my script, depending on the child and depending on the disability would have been different. So I looked at kids who used mobility devices. I looked at kids who used crutches. I looked at kids who had intellectual disability. And so I was open to whichever person fit the role best and then after that casting, everything else flowed because our logistical decisions had to be based around disability, our access decisions, our script decisions, like all sorts of things were able to be disability centered as opposed to like me as a writer creator committing to a, a certain creative choice and then shoehorning somebody in, which is I think what happens in 
the greater industry with disability with respect to a lot of different things where you just like shoehorn characters in, whereas that's kind of how you end up with, you know, people who are not disabled portraying disability and um, other sort of situations that become a bit problematic. So it was a really extraordinary process to kind of go through that and learn from that. And from that, I've since partnered with a company called Winterhouse Films that was doing a documentary series that's on air right now. We have our, our final episode is next week, um, but it's called Breaking Characters. And I was one of the directors of that series. And it's about um, six performers with disability who are just trying to like get access to the industry. So it was like a blind comedian and an actor who's deaf and like an actor in a wheelchair and like a bunch of different people who are just like trying to like get access to being performers. And um, it was an amazing project to work on. And through that have had created like a lot of different connections, both within film and disability for me. So um, I'm now working with AMI, which is the Accessible Media Network. And I'm working with them, Telefilm and the Canadian Media Fund to create Canada's first best practices guide with respect to disability. So it's a three year sort of research and writing process to get that guide put together. And um, AMI is also launching the disability screen office that will be open soon. So I'm consulting on that as well. So there hopefully will be a lot of changes and um, a lot more awareness with respect to disability in the Canadian media industries going forward. So. That's amazing. And to think that that all came out of, you know, your master's project and it's become something that's so much bigger than just you and one short film, which is amazing and amazing that you're giving back to the industry at large through that work that you're doing. Yeah, it's been a really um, extraordinary process. And I think, again, having been in the industry in general, having been in the industry for so long, um, I do have a ton of experience. And because I also come from the privilege of having an invisible disability that is not necessarily something that I disclose. I do disclose now, but in the beginning, though I was diagnosed while I was literally like on set and my production coordinator like drove me to my neurology appointment and then drove me back to set because I was in the middle of a commercial. I was warned by a lot of doctors in the beginning, like not to tell people that I would be discriminated against and I wouldn't get jobs and I wouldn't get access. And so it definitely took me a while to feel more comfortable. And now I find that like, I forget who I've told and who I haven't told, though I have now done a few interviews because of the short film and some other things that I've worked on in the last like year and a half. Most people that I work with regularly know about my disability, but again, like it's a privilege that I have where I'm able to not necessarily be perceived as having a disability I have access to this industry in a really different way than a lot of people with disability. And so I'm trying to advocate for more sort of open pathways and pipelines to get more people with disability represented inside the industry, both on camera and behind the screens um, in, in all of the various roles that are required because you know, one in five people in Canada have disabilities. So everything that you're doing is so amazing. So congratulations. <laughs> if I can switch gears a little bit. You mentioned that you feel like your uh, career has been an example in what, what not to do. So I'm curious, you know, if you have any other advice for people getting into the industry on, you know, what, what not to do. <laughs> it's really hard. And especially like my wisdom <laughs> that I have gathered where I'm now trying to shift gears. I mean, again, I keep throwing the word privilege around, but I, I need to because it's really important to recognize that like my background and my and my experience put me in a different position. Like I have been really successful at a thing that I didn't necessarily aim to aim for, like working through the unscripted side of the industry was something that was just like it fell into my lap and it was a great space and I ran with it. And um, it's been wonderful and I still work in that space. I do really love that, but I think if I could talk to myself coming out of university, I would, I would be like, commit to the thing you want. Like just like eat crackers and like sleep in a basement on a couch. If you have to like do that and like push for the thing that you really want for me would have, which would have been like trying to do scripted at that time when I had the energy and the like drive. I don't think that my career path is a mistake by any stretch because obviously you get to where you get to and it's it's all your own journey. But I think a huge part of where I am and why I'm here is 
the practicality and rationality that I have, like that balance of my personality that's like more left than right brained, that like really rational, practical side of me that comes from like, you know, I come from like a, an upper lower class, lower middle class background where like my parents didn't finish university and had just like regular jobs. And, and I come from like a really stable, regular, regular grounded background. The fact that I went to university for the arts and that my parents let, like pushed that was like amazing. I think in a lot of ways, I'm what my mom wished she could have been. She didn't get to pursue art. She like had to just get a job. If I could have just like trusted that I could have done it back then where I was just like, oh, but you have to pay rent. Oh, but you have to like eat, <laughs> which are all rational and you do have to do those things. <laughs> but I think like the prospect of changing gears now is is almost more terrifying because it's cutting ties. Like I had to, though I'm still, I, I definitely have like my foot still in, in the lifestyle space and in the unscripted space. And I'm so thankful to the, the connections and the, the people that I've worked with for years who still keep me employed. And I still love the work, but I think like, I had to like almost grieve that part of, of my career in order to like let myself try to do something else. And I think I'm, I may very well fail at this attempt I'm making in my 40s to try to like get into the scripted world now. I may completely like crash and burn and it go nowhere. But I think if I had never tried, I would be so much worse off. Like I think if I, I let another 10 years go by, if I kept feeling like I wasn't going to try, it would be that much harder. So I, I wish I had just like bet on myself a little bit earlier. Um, I have a colleague and like dear friend of mine, whose name is Sharon Lee, who you should talk to at some point. She's amazing. So years ago when I met Sharon, Sharon was the coordinator on that travel food show I did where I was the director. No way. And so that's how I met Sharon. And she, at the time she and I, like, we obviously crossed paths and chatted intermittently, but I was always on the road and she was super quiet. And I would never really hear a peep from her. And then I would hear like PAs or like cam assists on my set talking about how like, oh my God, I'm so tired. We were like shooting all night. And I'd be like, oh, what were you shooting? I was like, oh, Sharon did a short film. And I was like, oh, like she was just like constantly like turning out like web series and short films. And she just had this energy to like put towards doing her own projects. And it's paid off in spades, obviously, because that was like 2012 when she was coordinating. She probably worked in the industry for like another year as like a coordinator PM. I think that was sort of like where she got to before she left. But then she went and did the CFC and like got into like TIFF with her short film and then like continued just kind of making projects. And like, ugh, I'm so extraordinarily proud of her. But to see the effort that she was able to put in and the, the time frame, the investment of time that it took from like 2012 to like, I think her first sort of like, I'm speaking out of turn, you should ask her directly, but I think her first like actual paid directing work was like in 2018. And so like she'd been making short films for probably the four years before that. So that it is like a 10 year investment to like really see your career move and shift. And so if that's the case, I'm only in like the beginning and I will be probably 50 before it pays off, if it pays off at all. I have seen sort of that path that can exist. And obviously Sharon is like an extraordinary success story. I may never get anywhere near that, that level of success, but it's just fun to be near the glow of hers. But I think like giving it the shot, I think is the thing that matters. And I think like, I can always do the work I'm doing. I hope when we, when you look at this and edit it, I don't want to ever come across as being disparaging to the work that I do because I do appreciate and love it. I just... I know that like, if you really want to work in unscripted, I have friends who are like, so gifted at it and they live, breathe and sleep and eat it. Like they read the trades about it and they follow it on like all the social media platforms and like every morning know the stats of whatever has just come out in the like unscripted or competition spaces. Like that is a skill that I don't have in that I don't have the passion for the content in the same way that they do. And so I can see where like someone like that will go farther than me in unscripted and have a stronger connection to the, like the, the like corporate employability part of it. Whereas what I bring is I have an extraordinary skill, I think, for storytelling. And so I'm not picky about the content. If, you, if the story comes to me and I'm in front of it, I know how to navigate it and work my way through it. And I will tell the best story that exists 
in front of me on the, the camera or whatever in the set or on the, the farm or wherever we might be, I can navigate the story really, really well. And I can bring everything to that moment and, and bring everything out of those people. But I also just as easily can put it aside and move on with the rest of my day. Like I don't carry the work home with me. I'm really good at sort of like doing the work and going home. I'm really efficient as well at that. So I bring a different kind of skill set. I don't live, breathe, and eat this kind of content. They're like, I don't watch this kind of content in the same way people might. But if I never do, at least I tried. And then I can always keep doing the thing that I'm really good at in a different way. Yeah. You know what? I think that that's such good advice. And like, I really like it. It makes me feel seen in a lot of ways because I was also that like young 20s year old person who was freaking out about like stability in the industry and like how I was going to like live and pay rent. And I chose a much more like stable career path that let me be in the industry. And I don't have any regrets about it. I love my job. I love what I do, but I, yeah, like a song in my heart for other things sometimes too. And I, like, I totally relate to that. So I hope that people listening who are young or, you know, whatever feel like, okay, you know what? I I need to follow my passion and it's going to pay off and I shouldn't be too, I should, you know, worry about food, but not like, it's okay to have ramen noodles, you know, once a week. (laughs) I mean, we're in a recession. We're all going to be having ramen noodles for a while. We really are. We really are. (laughs) I think you have to really know what you want. And there's nothing wrong with knowing that you want a good job. Working in this industry in a lot of the, the roles that you never, ever hear about is getting a good job. Like you could be the art director for a bunch of different competition shows. You could be the like post sound person. These are like jobs in a way that like you get paid well for what you do, but you're never going to like go to the Emmys and you're never going to like, they're just going to be really good jobs that are like kind of like regular jobs, but just different schedules and slightly more creative. Like not everybody's going to come out of film school and become an Oscar winning director. Like there's 120 other jobs that exist within the spectrum of making content. There's nothing wrong with that either. Like not all of us are here to like make a mark and tell our stories. Um, But if you are, and if you have that inkling, again, it may not pay off, but might as well try. And if you can try earlier, it's probably easier. <laughs> so again, that's what I recommend. But again, I, I, I don't begrudge the career that I've had. I've been extraordinarily lucky. And I'm really glad when I look back at all the like weird and wacky, crazy and scary stories I can tell. It's been an amazing ride. But I also recognize that like, because I jump around in my career path, because I've jumped through a lot of different companies and a lot of different content, I still constantly, my brain wants to jump and do things. So like doing the master's degree was a jump that really worked for me. Working in disability advocacy and content is like a really great space for me. Um, you know, there are a bunch of future paths that maybe don't even exist yet that I'll try to go on. So I, I'm a little bit more random maybe than the average Joe, but also that comes with the fact that I'm, you know, in my forties and I don't have children and I'm not married. So I can be a little bit more free flowing with like what I do with myself. <laughs> Cause I think that's the other thing that I've t- talked a lot um, with friends like Sharon um, about like, you know, if, if you get, work in this industry and you get to a certain place and you aren't doing it for the kids or like for the outside life that you have, like for me, the stuff that I get off on most is, is the content, like making and telling stories and sharing people's stories. Like the, the two seasons I worked on the CBC series, Hello, Goodbye. It's an unbelievable show. And in the second season of that series, I was the senior story producer, which is essentially the content director. And then there's a director for the visuals. Um, who was Christina Carvalho that season. And she's amazing, also amazing documentary director, um, director and producer. And so she and I would do that series. And like, it's it's the most extraordinary documentary process I've ever been through because that show is made in the moment. It is not precast. You are literally walking the floor of the airport, going up to every stranger you see going, hey, what brings you to the airport today? Who are you waiting for? <laughs> And seeing if that stranger that you've just accosted on the floor is going to talk to you. And through those kinds of random 
like every 25 minute new conversation, you end up finding this person with this gem of a story that is like both gut wrenching or hilarious or like so like beautiful and they're willing to share it like just like that on the drop of hat, like literally to the point of like, we're all wearing walkies and earpieces and we're on the floor. And during the, during my season um, where I was the lead on that, I was like, the only thing I can do to make this show better and to make sure we get better stories is have more people. So I had like a, a longer, bigger story team to just send people out to talk in every direction on every floor of the airport. And literally you could just get like a walkie of like, I have a story. And then we'd like, they'd come to me and Christina and we would confer as to like, can we pull this off? What's the timeline? Okay. The clock's running. And then literally like the camera team of four and the sound team of two and all the additional camera people um, for the like auxiliary teams suddenly just like, Oh, everybody's on their feet. And we literally just like surround somebody <laughs> and we're like, okay, we're filming right now. It's happening. Like it was like just the most organic, authentic sort of filmmaking process I've ever been a part of where you're just, just thrown right into it. And these amazing people are just so willing and so vulnerable and capable of telling and sharing their stories with us. It was just like unbelievable. So like, I love those experiences and I want so much more of that. And like those kinds of like stories I will like never forget. So I, I want to keep experiencing that and having that. And I, I love all that experience, but yeah, I don't know what, I don't know what will be next. I don't know what the next story to tell will be. So my last question for you before I let you go, though I feel like I could sit here and talk to you all day. Um, <laughs> I feel this has been very random and I don't know that we've like covered enough questions and I've probably talked way too much. No, no, this is perfect. This is the best kind of episode. So my last question is, can you recommend a piece of Canadian content that you love? Yes. Um, I mean, there's lots. I actually, I was thinking about this because I, I remembered that you'd, Put that through on the questions. So I love the film In Her Place by Albert Shin. I think it's from 2014. So it's a bit of an older piece, um, but it was his first feature and he came through York. So I think I was like, I gravitated to his story. So I was like, oh, very jealous because he's a lot younger than me and like had his first feature. I think he's done three features now, um, all that have done quite well, but this was his first and it's, it's so extraordinarily beautiful. And I remember hearing an interview of like how he came to like tell the story. Um, but it's a story of three different women or three connected women um, in Korea. So it's a Canadian Korean co-production. And he overheard the story, I believe at a cafe in like Brampton. He heard like two women talking at a different table and was like, something is happening that's interesting there. And so it's this really unique, painful sort of like female-led story about like a woman who's infertile who's trying to like get a baby through a, a teen pregnancy situation and like the mother of the pregnant teen is also sort of going through her own demons and struggles and it's just like an extraordinarily beautiful painful story but it's great in her place oh, that's amazing that's a beautiful recommendation thank you so so much and thank you for coming and giving the best, most realistic, pragmatic, honest advice. I so appreciate it. This was such a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. If you love the show, the best way that you can support the channel is to leave us a five-star review and a rating and be sure to share it with your friends. Thank you so much. I'm going on a bit of a summer hiatus, but I will be back in no time and I can't wait to see you then.